0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, it has been almost a year since our current guest has been with us. I have in my life three remarkable astrologers, Tashi Power and our own Trish McGregor, whose uh, mystical underground podcast is carried on Unknown Country as well. And Ray Grass, and Ray Grass and I have had now quite a history together. Uh, We did a a dreamland, a number of dreamlands, and the latest one is in September of last year. And he also did an astrology reading for me that was truly remarkable. I took down notes as to what he was telling me about what would happen and what the situation would be at various uh, points in my life and put them in my calendar. And boy, did it unfold that way. Ray Grasset is a Chicago-based writer, musician, photographer, and astrologer. He worked for 10 years at Quest Books and the Quest magazine, He's an associate editor of The Mountain Astrologer. He received a degree in filmmaking from the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, He was under experimental film pioneer John Brackage, who I admired enormously, and John Luther Schofield. He studied with various teachers in both the Kira Yoga and Zen traditions. He has lectured extensively, and you can probably find him from time to time on the lecture circuit. Uh, besides his own books, he has create, committed, uh, contributed to many anthologies. And today, we're going to be talking about his new book, which I don't have with me. Yes, I do. When the Stars Align a book of reflections and they are remarkable reflections. You can reach Ray at raygrasse.com or raygrassephotography.com. He's also a marvelous photographer. So Ray, uh, w- welcome to dreamland. I'm glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks. Well, wonderful. Uh Okay. Now I'm going to start with, I think some, the first, the stars, when the stars align is a huge journey. Ray has taken quite a life journey. Uh, and, uh, it started out, uh, with horror stories. It's <laughs> <That's> a surprising <laughs> question, isn't it? Right. Uh, But I read these books. I don't just do interviews. I'm into this very deeply. And uh, so tell us
1: how you went
0: from horror stories to mysticism.
1: Well, I've often um, half seriously said that uh, horror movies and horror books, monster movies and all that was my uh, gateway drug into mysticism and the occult because unlike, let's say, war movies or just violent films, horror movies had that element of the other, uh, the, the ethereal. And so there was always that fascination in what is hidden, what is the mystical, the metaphysical. So when I was growing up in the 60s, there were all of these Roger Corman films, you know, the Vincent Price films, and I write in the book about meeting Vincent Price as a 13-year-old, which for a 13-year-old kid into monster movies was like, you know, meeting Jesus. And uh, it segued right from there. And I also the other thing that influenced me about those films was the extraordinary photography. Like Carl Freund, uh, the great German cinematographer, directed The Mummy, and he had also done in Germany, films like M, I believe, and Metropolis, and you know, the Photography. So those films had a huge impact on me in a lot of ways. And from there, it was a natural step in my teens into reading about, like, *Morning of the Magicians, that book, or books on astrology and uh, various books, uh, or the, the Tompkins book on the Great Pyramid and so on and so forth. So to me, it felt like a natural progression going from those metaphysical types of films and stories into esotericism and, and metaphysics.
0: So, uh, d- tell us a little bit about uh, the, uh, the the last uh, show we did was about your book "Facing the Shadow," and I see some of that now in your early life, which I did not know about. And you have a comfort level with the shadow. I would say that that is something that is gained over years. It's not something that we 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 start with. I I know facing the shadow has been a very big part of my life, and I think most of my listeners are probably on a similar path. Why don't you tell us what you mean and what your experience is of facing the shadow?
1: Well, it it, it ties back to the first question about the horror films and that sort of thing. And I suppose some of that uh, when you're younger. My mother was actually very, very concerned about uh, my my attraction to horror and gruesome sort of things. And, um, and I think some of that is dysfunctional. But another part of it is a fascination with, like I said before, the other, the dark side in all this. And I think as I got older, it moved into a healthier sort of approach to that. And it, it was also a fascination, I think, by symbol, symbolic correspondence with the unconscious, with psychology, um, with psychology with the hidden forces of life. And that's where astrology is so fascinating because it shows you these internal archetypal dynamics, the hidden dynamics of everyday events and psychology. And uh, so it really grew out of that, what at first seemed to be somewhat extreme. Um, I I tell in the book about, uh, my dad was a carpenter. He worked on construction sites in the city in Chicago. And I, I asked him to build me a coffin at one point, a, a plywood coffin. And he did. He was very kind and very generous. And he wasn't as worried about my sanity as my mother was. Maybe he should have been. But he built this for me. And so there was this fascination with death, with dying, with what happens when we die. And, uh, and, and like I say, the, the, the horror films of Vincent Price, Boris Karloff and all that, they were, they were an opening into that. And I think it's very easy for a parent to misjudge that. Understandably so. It's it's in some cases it can be, I think, a dysfunctional sort of thing. But uh, it grew from there into a fascination with, in particular, Jungian psychology and uh, symbolism. You know, that's the other thing. A film that had a gigantic impact on me when I was a kid was I happened to catch on TV. A, a screening of Hitchcock's Spellbound. And you may remember, I'm sure you do, the dream sequence by Salvador Dali in that movie. And that absolutely entranced me because I realized that was my first conscious grasp of symbolism of of how images could speak in a language deeper than words because there were there was floating eyes in the sky and there was a man running down the side of a pyramid with the, a shadow of a giant bird overhead. And these didn't make any sense from a logical standpoint, but they, they clearly spoke to something deep inside the, the mind, inside the psyche. And from there, I became very interested in Salvador Dali and surrealism and uh, symbolism in my first book, The Waking Dream. Uh, was really about symbolism and The subtitle is Unlocking the Symbolic Language of Our Lives, and it was really the fruit of many years, actually several decades of study with yogis and mystics and occultists about, and indigenous peoples, about how is our everyday life reflective as as above, so below, but also as without, so within. What is the secret kind of language of events in our lives, and What's the deeper layered? You don't want to get too obsessed with that. You know, I think, you know, a lot of people go through that stage early on where you become overly you know, scrutinizing every little thing. But you grow out of that, or at least I'd like to think most of us do. And um so that shadow and that's a very big umbrella that covers a lot of different things. It's it's um you know, we tend to think of it as being in the conventional Jungian sense, that which we don't want to face in ourselves. But I I use that term more so in terms of all of those things that are kind of hidden that we normally don't pay attention to that are underlying our everyday psyche and our everyday life or the events in our lives. Does that answer your question at all? Oh,
0: you know, absolutely. It's a fascinating answer to the question. Uh, I uh, And I think that, you know, we're, we are we are needing to find our way when confronting the shadow and essentially what the shadow is is the discovery of death which happens in in mid childhood and all yeah. of a sudden i realize wait a minute what just happened to granny is going to happen to me i am going to die uh so And then the shadow comes, and we have to come to terms with it. Every single one of us does. My wife used to say, we're here to live, Whitley, but we're also here to die. And, you know, it's not, in our society, we think of death as a sort of catastrophe, but it isn't. It is a culmination of very, very different thing. Now, I want to move on to... Excuse uh, me, can I
1: possibly interject something there? Yeah, that I think is really important. Uh, that's a beautiful segue into what's happening in America right now. Because one of the things that I wrote about three years ago for Mountain Astrologer, and it's, it's a chapter in my book, Stargates, the United States right now is undergoing its Pluto return. And in fact, this week that we're talking, you and I, is one of the trigger points for this energy. And Pluto has a lot to do with the shadow. It has to lot has a lot to do with the hidden... the the legacies of the past that we don't want to face up to. And right now, America, and this is what I was saying three years ago in the article from Mount Astrologer, it's on astro.com, if you type in my name and Pluto return, you'll find it. America is having to face a lot of darkness in its own soul, and a lot of the unresolved legacies of its past, including slavery, the treatment of indigenous peoples, also corruption. One of the things I predicted in that article was that it could see, uh, one of the seven things I predicted was it could see the fall of very prominent people, whether that be politicians or celebrities, in terms of things like treason or uh, sexual scandals, things like that. And, uh, And also the same day, in fact, that This last trigger happened, which was uh, July 11th, just a few days ago, was the same day as that first photograph of the James Webb telescope came back, which was very shadowy in the sense of we were unveiling hidden depths of the universe that we had never seen before. When uh, Biden got up there that first day, they showed that one photograph and the next day they revealed other ones there's a lot of ways in which we're all having to confront the shadow. And I think gun violence is a big part of it in terms of there is a certain innate violence in the American soul, even though, you know, we don't like to think of that. And uh, so a lot of these old things are coming back now. And uh, you and I have a mutual friend that's involved in uh, some Native American things right now and wounded knee and trying to bring things to light that uh, have been, forcefully kept from view and i think that's all part of this and then native americans and the the school children that have been found uh, buried and dead and all this sort of thing so i wanted to mention that before you move on i apologize for interrupting you
0: it's not an interruption i i was moving in that direction anyway because i think it's very important and I, I you know what i want to do is uh uh, let's go let's go back to another planet uh Uranus, yeah. which is you mentioned in the book is associated with this era and can you maybe it will be- begin to build a larger perspective and then we'll get back to the situation in the United States and we might also talk about the u k too if you want to because uh we have a load of listeners in the u k and I'm sure they'd be interested as well. In I mean, in that Boris Johnson has recently had his tent pulled over, pulled off of him, and I wouldn't say he's pulled this tent; he's more been left with no tent and sort of had to wander off the wander out of the campground. But in any case, let's start with a description of the relationship between I want to say in a big way between the reality of modern times and the planet Uranus.
1: Well, you know, the other curious thing is that this decade not only sees the U.S. Pluto return, but the U.S. Uranus return, which happened during the Civil War, for example. So there are several indicators that are pointing towards a lot of upheaval in America. of It's not just about violence. It's about rethinking the American experiment in terms of what that's about. What's the old saying about before the Civil War, the United States were, after the Civil War, the United States is, or something like that, this idea of, figuring out who we are as a nation. But Uranus, as a general principle, has to do with modernity, with technology, with media. With the discovery of Uranus in 1781 uh, was really, in my opinion, there's no single date for the birth of the Aquarian Age, but it was a significant pivotal point of the 1770s, the 1780s, 1790s. And uh, in in our first talk many, many years ago, after my second book came out, I mentioned about how uh, there was a Uranus return the same month as Roswell in in 1947. So that was a huge kind of tectonic shift. And you had asked me when something to the effect of when's the next one. And I said that I, I think 2031, 2032 in that ballpark. And so we're coming into this period of secrets being divulged, of I think major advancements. Although it could also be, Uranus is also automation. It could be, it could be like James Cameron movies with, you know, the artificial intelligence you know, developing its own power and you know, robots taking over. It's interesting. In the 1700s, you had uh, automatons, you know, it's, it's you know these uh, robots made to look like humans. So a lot of what we're seeing happen right now, in my opinion, is this shift between the old age and the new age. It's like the Piscean Age and the Aquarian Age, in the sense that like the abortion debate is a classic example of this. And I'm not taking sides here, so I'm not trying to ruffle feathers. But it's really a battle between a religious paradigm and a secular paradigm. The Piscean Age is explicitly religious in nature. Excuse me. And the Aquarian Age is secular. It's somewhat materialistic, although I don't see that as intrinsically bad. I think that it it doesn't have to be divorced from from spirituality. It's just that it is more secular. And what we're seeing in this battle between the pro-life forces and the pro-choice forces, which is coming to a head very strongly right now, um, and that's also tied into the Pluto return, I think that that's this battle between ages, a battle between fundamentally different paradigms, and I, I don't think there's really a compromise between the two. I think ultimately the Aquarian Age wins out. It doesn't mean the Piscean Age forces die out. It just means that they, they don't have the upper hand, though they may seem to right now in America. But um, so that that's that's if that's not quite getting to what you're asking about, please press me and I'll try to elaborate a little. Or clarify a little no, bit.
0: that's the, this is very uh, interesting, and you know I didn't realize that uh, Uranus was discovered in 1781, which was, of course, the pivotal year of the American Revolution. Basically, that's the year that the, the Articles of, uh, of Confederation, not the not the Constitution, yes. were adopted, and by the end of that year, the British were f- basically finished in America.
1: 1781 and- is when Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And
0: so uh, n- now what's interesting to me is this I, I want to segue a little bit here from the the relationship between what's happening to uh, on earth and and the, the planets is if and ask you this question if Uranus hadn't been discovered then would the world have happened differently? In other words, is the discovery itself part of the strange power of astrology? And we're gonna talk later, folks, about what that power is, because Ray knows a lot about it and having seen it work in my own life is I consider it incredibly fascinating and mysterious. But I have good news and bad news. The good news is Communion is out in audiobook at last, read by me, the whole book. And the bad news is that free dreamlanders, you're going to have to hear more about that and more about some other wonderful things right now. We will be right back. We're talking to Ray Grasset, his Website, simple to remember, raygresse.com G-R-A-S-S-E dot com. Uh, you can find Ray there. You, Ray offers uh, uh, readings, which I have done. and <laughs> I had a great time. I'm telling you, it was a very useful reading, including the parts that were mentioned as dangerous periods. I'll give you how exact that was. Most of you remember that I uh, was, um, had, my apartment entered and uh was it was things were molested nothing was stolen but apparently my computer was hacked and the next thing i knew whoever had entered this apartment had gotten into the website and was trying to destroy it fortunately unknown country has been there and done that and we have a lot of security deep security and they they weren't able to do much of anything except indicate cause us to notice their presence that happened on a, in, in, in a period of time where Ray had warned me that there would be things th- that, that, that could happen, and that warning had come six months before in his reading of my chart. Ray's new book is When the Stars Align, Reflections on Astrology, Life, Death, and Other Mysteries. of uh, you know, Ray is a, 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 he's a sort of a hidden master, really. I mean, I regard him as a master, and uh, but you don't think of, when you think of masters, you think of uh, the Dalai Lama and or people like that, but you don't think of Ray Grasset. I think you should listen very closely because there's an enormous richness here. Now, before we left the air, we talked just briefly about the relationship between the discovery of astronomical objects and their astrological significance. And Ray, can you uh, speak to that? I think you might have some really interesting things to say.
1: Uh, Most astrologers tend to think that the discovery of a planet is very symbolic and synchronistic in terms of some awakening of a new state of consciousness In the collective and people often, like I've often done, you look to what happens around the discovery of the planet. Uranus was 1781, uh, Neptune was around 1846, Pluto's 1930, and you see some uncanny correspondences around those periods historically to what was going on in the culture, um, in the culture to what that planet came to mean. And, but I think it would be a mistake to think that it's an entirely new state of awareness in the collective as far as when it's discovered is when it actually first appears in the collective experience, because that's not true. Um, If you look back to when, for example, uh, Richard Tarnas in his book Cosmos and Psyche talks about these outer planet patterns through history. So there was this extraordinary lineup of the outer three planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto in the 6th century B.C., which historically was a turning point in history, the axial religions and so on. And yet none of those three planets were consciously known at the time. They weren't discovered till you know, like I said, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. So they were still active, but when they become discovered, when they are visualized, when they are actually photographed, for example, or seen through a telescope, I think they become more of a conscious sort of, presence one that can be utilized more so when the discovery of uranus happened in the late 1700s principles of freedom of uh, the industrial revolution capitalism 1781 was also a very important year in terms of a turning point in philosophy with Immanuel kant and so on and so forth so um now the big question is is there going to be a new planet discovered in the next few years because scientists astronomers have been uh, talking for quite some time about, you know, is there another planet out there, planet X? And um, I'm, I'm watching very carefully. It's sort of a heavy debate whether it really exists or the findings, the irregularities in other planets and asteroids indicate something else out there. We don't know. But if something is discovered, we're going to look very carefully at what happens when it actually is discovered, what's going on in the culture and so on and so forth. And then slowly watch it in people's horoscopes to try to make sense of what it means. So that's that's kind of how I would answer your question.
0: There is um, the reason this. It's believed that this planet is somewhere out there. It could even be interestingly enough a uh, uh, a little a tiny dark star because of the reason we know something is out there because of the way that its gravity waves affect the outer solar system we just can't find it so it's it's not a question of there was a long period of time when there was a lot of debate about planet x that went a bit off the rails but this is not off the rails it's out there something is there do you think do you think the fact that we know that something is there might itself have some effect or not
1: oh yeah I think, um, but I really think when it becomes actually seen and photographed is the turning point, when it becomes really conscious. I think it's always, for example, in 1930, that was when uh, Pluto was discovered. And you see the rise of the underworld, you know, Al Capone and all this sort of thing. You know, Pluto has to do with the underworld uh, in, in a lot of ways, symbolically in the unconscious, in the shadow. But you see I mean, it build- the
0: underworld came roaring out, excuse me, in in the form of Nazism.
1: Boy. Oh, no, yeah. And, and Pluto also rules autocrats. It rules dictators and so on. So absolutely. But it was building up through the 20s, if you see what I'm getting at. In other words, it was slowly, I think, coming up to the surface of consciousness, and then in 1930, boom. And by the same token, going back to your question, I think that whatever is out there is – is slowly rising up at the surface, and we're feeling it, but we can't quite put our finger on it yet in terms of what it means. We will when it's discovered. I think that we're going to have a much clearer sense of it, especially as we see what sort of events happen around the weeks, months, and year around the actual discovery.
0: You know, I don't recall ever having or hearing a discussion of astrology quite like this. I think this is absolutely fascinating. I wonder if you've ever tried to identify any of the subtle signals or signs of uh, of what kind of influences this mysterious presence out there might might be leading us to if if we do find it and it emerges
1: I've thought about that a lot and i I haven't come up with anything yet that's really specific i wish i could because so much of what's going on i can attribute pretty much to other things right now such as the pluto return for the u.s or pluto moving through capricorn um and and pluto and uranus coming up to its return point in the next 10 years so the, the tricky thing as an astrologer is sorting out what are you how much of what you're feeling or seeing or sensing is due to this influence versus that influence? And because sometimes they overlap. There sometimes can be a confusion over whether something is Neptunian or Plutonian or Uranian. So I haven't been able to figure out a way to de- determine what this new planetary archetypal influence is. its uh, I wish I could tell you. I'm fascinated to find out.
0: I have an idea, Ray. Yeah. It's, Maybe it's the coming of the visitors. It could well be. Yeah, because that has been sort of under the surface for a long time, kind of percolating, and it's a real outlier. I mean, literally, just like the planet. And uh, maybe the discovery of that planet will will signify the discovery of the visitors as well.
1: I think that could very well be, and part of the reason I believe that is that uh, if there is another planet out there, it's way out there. It's past Pluto.
0: Way out, exactly.
1: And I think that's symbolic in terms of the further out in space, that's the further out into the depths of the darkness of space, and symbolically that coming to light has to do with hidden things coming to light, kind of like what's happening for America right now with the Pluto return. So the further out you go, I think, the further out galactically you're kind of reaching. I think that there could be some contact. It either is going to be like we're seeing with the James Webb telescope, seeing further out into space, but it could also be making contact with intelligences that are further out if the visitors are in fact ETs and not, let's say, interdimensional or time travelers or something, which is an open question for me
0: oops yeah an open question for me too i agree with you uh now let's go on to one of the fascinating films things in the book is your your relating of the media and entertainment to uh to this whole process and of of of, of revelation and and i see astrology as being an ongoing process of revelation where we are finding the closer we get to a clear understanding of our relationship to our place in this, in this vast mechanism, uh, the, the more is revealed that. So let's talk about awakening and which is a very interesting aspect of your book and of your whole work in life. In fact, uh, the, I think maybe to quantify it or to let's talk about films first Uh, that you, you know, we, we could talk about uh, the films that, that, and that you, you speak of in the book and the way they reflect the age. I thought that material was fascinating.
1: Well, a good example of that was, uh, that Netflix film last fall, um, Midnight Mass, which, as I say in the book, I think was the citizen gain of horror films. It's just a brilliant work. I think it's six parts, seven parts, I forget how many. And it has multiple levels. uh, Unlike, uh, There's not many films of that genre that have that multiplicity of interpretations. But one of those, without giving away too much of the plot line, has to do with what we said before about the shift from the religious age and a specifically Christian age into a more secular and scientific age and the battle that's taking place between those. And it also, by the way, applies to what's happening in America because the the show came um, out last fall right under a major activation of Pluto, which was affecting the U.S. Pluto return. So it had it was an American production, basically. And so it had a lot to do with, I think, America having to face its its own shadow side, as well as its religious shadow, because the movie deals a lot with the kind of the dysfunctional aspect of religion and the dysfunctional aspect of of Christianity, if I could be honest. So that's one example, but there's many examples. And I talk about Citizen Kane as well, in terms of embodying certain themes, both both explicitly as well as implicitly, explicitly the heavy focus on the media in Citizen Kane, the whole movie, revolves around this kind of tabloid journalistic you know, uh, prying into people's personal lives and the intrusion of media in our private life on a more implicit level. It t- there's all this, this, the subtlety of that film in terms of it's very decentralized. The storyline is not straight linear. It's, it's decentralized the narrative in terms of jumping all over the place. It's also decentralized yeah. in terms of the, it's not a, A singular viewpoint, a God's eye view of the the character. It's like a a person's view from a person's personality from many different uh, viewpoints that are chronicled throughout the film. So there's many examples I think of how media reflects the the dynamics of what's happening in the zeitgeist, especially astrologically and even in this broader sense of the Great Ages.
0: There's a wonderful film, another Netflix film called Mank, which is about about oh, yeah. Joe Mankiewicz and, and the making of Citizen Kane. And and it, it's not in the film, but there's a open... It's no secret, I'm sure a lot of my listeners already know this, uh, that the word <laughs> rosebud, which starts the film, was <laughs> a first secret, uh, secret name for his, for Marion Davis' uh, private parts. And... When he heard that, he apparently in his mansion and in Xanadu, uh, he he uh, the Hearst Castle, he leaped up and rushed out of the room immediately. He was absolutely florid and horrified because it meant to him that she'd spilled the beans to Mank, and and then he kicked Mank out of the house and out of his life forever. Yeah. Um, in any case, uh, that's a little side aside there. Uh, and what we're going to do, speaking of asides, and the reason I'm segueing around instead of keeping to the subject, is to lead you free dreamlanders down the primrose path to these commercials. We're talking to Ray Grasset, his new book, When the Stars Align. His website raygresse You can sign on there for an astrology reading. Uh, I have had one; it worked for me very well, and uh, so I'm. I would say it's an endorsement, definitely. Now, Ray, there we are. I think um, I want to talk now. About something you call the principle of octaves in uh, in astrology, and the way and 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 the significance of symbols. Because the thing that's so fascinating about getting under the surface of the way astrology works—that's why I wanted to talk first about things like the discovery of Uranus and Pluto, and the the mysterious. Sig- possible influence of planet X already hitting us. Um, Under the surface of astrology, you begin to see a structure. So can you tell us about the principle of octaves? Because I think that's a very important part of understanding the hidden structure of astrology.
1: Yeah. uh, Any given symbol or symbolic pattern or configuration can manifest on different levels. It's one of the key principles of occultism and metaphysics. And uh, so, the same principle can manifest in a very crude way and also in a very subtle way. And using astrology just as a starting point here, you know, what is is Pisces a good sign or a bad sign? Well, it's a nonsensical question. It depends on who's wearing it, so to speak. So. On the one hand, you have people like um, John Wayne Gacy, but you also have Michelangelo. And um, there's, there's many levels at which you can express an energy. Or you take the example of uh, Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler were born basically the same week, in 1889, I think it was, and uh, with some very similar patterns in their horoscopes. And, and they look the same. You know, you really... You, take away the bowler hat on uh, and the the haircut and the mustache and all that is similar between the two men and yet and one even played the other one in a movie the great dictator and so they they, they had this commonality of an archetypal substrata you might say but they obviously went in completely different directions with it and you see this all the time in, in astrology it's i did a chart for someone born within minutes of Donald Trump and uh, their lives were entirely different, but there were certain patterns that were the same. And I won't go into specifics, but um, it's when it comes to the Great Ages, for example, is I read these simplistic takes on the Aquarian Age. It's going to be all good, brotherhood, love, you know, the lamb lying down with the lion, and all that sort of thing, or other people that describe it more as an Orwellian sort of, uh, you know, bureaucratic machine world. And uh, it's not one or the other. It might be all of the above. And if you look to the Piscean Age, for example, it was everything over different centuries in different places. At the same time that Europe was in darkness, the, uh, the Islamic Empire was is doing quite well. And you know it, this simplistic tendency that I think people have to try to boil it down into a monolithic reality. And, um, and so the Aquarian Age is... it's. It's going to be, I think, on the one hand, it could be a wonderful, it's a time of great scientific exploration. It's a time of great technological advances like like Thomas Edison, uh, Steve Jobs types. But it could also be a time of uh, bureaucratic uh, impersonality, you might say. It's, it's not one or the other. Now, does that address your question at all?
0: Yeah, I think it does. I, uh, I'm, what I'm looking for is s- something about this hidden structure. But I'd like you to uh, amplify your comments about the Aquarian Age, because of course, in my day, I saw hair, and I, you know, I was looking forward to the Aquarian Age being fairly cool uh, in, in a lot of ways that young, sort of semi hippified boys welcomed. I'm not a young semi-hippified boy anymore, but I still want to be free. Tell me, tell us about your vision of the Aquarian age.
1: I think that uh, it will be, to a certain extent, what you're saying, but it's not going to be exclusively that. We've already seen, when you compare the world now to where it was, let's say, 100 years ago, in terms of, I mean, it's not perfect, but... When you compare it in terms of women's rights, in terms of our understanding of the universe, uh, civil rights, etc., it's, it's, it's really a huge advance. When you look at the number of democracies that were in the world back in, uh, in 1781 uh, and look at it now, there's problems, there's autocracy rising up around the world, but it's, I think it's overall a very positive trajectory. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can ever you know, stop fighting in the sense of uh, you, we can't get too complacent because there's always that backward tendency to kind of backslide into the old ways of doing things. And you see that right now in America. You see this tendency to try to like deprive us of our rights or you know, whatever. So I think that it's a fantastic time in a lot of ways. But I don't think, you know, this is the earth plane after all. I don't think there's ever a time when it just is a walk in the park. I think it's, there's always challenges. So expecting it to be kind of a utopia, I think, is nonsense. But I'd much rather live in the world we have now than where it was, let's say, in the, the 16 or 1700s. And by the same token, I'd like to believe that 500 years from now, yes, there could be problems, but I'd like to believe it's going to be the rights will have expanded. there will be more understanding of psychology and of nature and so on and so forth. but it's not uniform. that's the thing we've learned from the last few ages. What may be great in one part of the world may not necessarily apply to every other part of the world. it's like a it's it's a bit like a global whack-a-mole in terms of you know the enlightenment factor.
0: you have a very interesting um, segment in the in in the book about the Beatles and them being avatars of the Aquarian age and what that means based on what they were and what they did. And I think to get an idea of the good things we can expect out of about, about the Aquarian age, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the influence of the Beatles. But free dreamlanders, yeah. wait, 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 I'm not finished. Free Dreamlanders, uh, I'm not finished. And I'm not finished because it's time for you to see some more commercials. So sit back and enjoy them. They're going to be incredibly cool. But what would be even cooler for you is if you didn't have to watch them at all, become a subscriber. Come on, do it. It's not expensive. It's easy. We have PayPal. We have credit card signups. And one thing we don't have is many questions about how it works or or things going wrong because it works very smoothly and things don't go wrong. So enjoy Dreamland, and unknown country, more deeply and join our fun community. If you look at the comments all over the website, it's a wonderful social media place, a lovely place. It, you know, we don't have trolls. And so if you want to troll, troll elsewhere. We'll be right back. We're back talking to Ray Grasset. When the stars align, reflections on astrology, life, death, and other mysteries, including the significance of the Beatles that we'll be talking about in a moment. Uh, Ray's website is raygrasset.com. On his website, you can sign up for a reading, an astrological reading. I had one, it was excellent and very useful. I urge you, if you do that, take notes dates that will be there and they will be in if they're my life experience with this was any any sign the dates that he mentions will be important to you okay ray let's talk about one of everybody's favorite subjects uh the the beatles and good lord what incredible music living through we're older guys Ray and I both lived through the advent of the Beatles. And I can assure you, there has been nothing else in music, anything like that. It was like an atomic bomb of sheer joy exploded
1: into the world. That's a good way to put it. Um, When I... Refer to the Beatles as avatars. I mean that, you know, more metaphorically. I don't mean they literally were, although who knows? I think avatars can take many forms. Avatars being the technical definition is direct incarnation of God. Well, we're all direct incarnations of God, you could say. But, uh, why did the Beatles galvanize global culture the way that it did? It obviously plugged into something very profound in the zeitgeist, in the collective unconscious. And I think that has a lot to do with they were, in a sense, vanguards of the coming Aquarian age in several ways, one of which was uh, it was, it was there's so many ways to go about this. They were a collective. They were a group, which is an Aquarian thing, but they were a group with individual personalities. They weren't faceless. We knew John, Paul, George, and Ringo. That was not something most people, if you said, who are the uh, backup musicians for Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley, I doubt if one out of 100 could name the actual performers behind those individuals. Whereas everybody knew the names John, Paul, George, and Ringo, which is a different collective from a Piscean collective. Both the Piscean Age and the Aquarian Age have to do with collectives. But if you want to think of the Piscean Age in a form of music ensemble, it would be the Gregorian choir, where there's, you're not supposed to express your individuality. You're, you're faceless. You're anonymous. in, in you're aiming towards a religious ideal as well, whereas the Beatles represent a more kind of jazz ideal where everyone has their own voice in the choir. There's an individual creativity is encouraged. That's one part of it. It's a new kind of collective ideal that was not there to the same degree in the Piscean Age and earlier ages. It also represents a shift in terms of global culture. They had a global impact. And uh, I remember watching when they did All you, All you Need Is Love and it was a satellite hookup and it was seen by countless millions of people. There was that sense of plugging into this, this kind of mass consciousness at the time. There was also this sense of um, secularism. I remember the time that uh, John Lennon made this comment about the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. And he didn't mean that in the way that it was taken by most people. He meant simply that they were, in fact, more popular amongst a lot of young people than Jesus. And that was, to me, that happened at a very pivotal time, 65, I think it was, when the Uranus-Pluto conjunction It was a very profound, profound tipping point, the mid-60s, astrologically, in all sorts of ways. And him saying that, it was a few months after that, the Time magazine had that cover, Is God Dead? This shift from a religious culture to a secular culture, they embodied that. And also the sense of freedom. The key thing, it wasn't just an explosion of joy, an atomic bomb of joy, like you said. That's true. It was also a new sense of freedom as a young kid at the time. Going to see a hard day's night. There was this sense of a liberation of, of kids doing whatever they want. I mean, that could go obviously in a in a, the wrong direction, but there was a whole sense of personal self-expression that really hadn't been experienced in the culture as when the Beatles came out, and that's very Aquarius. You might say Aquarius Leo polarity. That sense of, of freedom, and that even had a huge impact on global politics. There are a number of historians, including Russian historians, that believe that the Beatles had a huge impact on the fall of the uh, USSR because of the young people getting bootleg versions of Beatles albums and, and getting a whole sense of a new way of looking at the world and, uh, and that filter percolating up from the lower levels of the culture, which actually reminds me Another part of what the Beatles represent, they were work, so-called working-class heroes. It, wasn't, it was a new dispensation. It wasn't like uh, royal bloodlines of people inheriting the crown, so to speak. It was people rising up from the working class, from the bottom up, which is very Aquarian. You know, Leo at the top of the – well, top is relative, but Leo at the other end of the Zodiac is more royalty. Aquarius is more kind of the people is people power the beatles represented people power to a certain extent so on a number of levels as well as spiritual because they really brought in this global spirituality the beatles brought in a sense of uh, hindu uh, yogic spirituality and meditation that had only been there in slight ways before that so there was this you know this cross pollination of global cultures that happened as a result of the beatles that had been building up for years beforehand, but the Beatles just it was turbocharged at that point. So those are a few of the things I feel that the Beatles represented. You know,
0: uh, you know, you mentioned the Rolling Stones in the book, and I'm, I was very interested in that because of a personal thing. I, when I was living in London in the 60s, I was a little groupy. I didn't know any of these people. But uh, there was a flat uh, that, uh, and the pheasantry was owned by, I guess rented probably by Eric Clapton, and it was a sort of open house. Uh, you could go there if you knew about it, uh, and you knew people who were going there, and I did, and hang out, and all kinds of cool things would happen there including the occasional appearance of big rock and rollers. Eric at the time was just just becoming, the cream were just becoming big. And it was an exciting time because he would he would be there every once in a while. And he, I saw him once get a phone call from the US about his album sales of his first album there. And boy, he was it was a big celebration. Anyway, it was all a lot of fun. Uh, and, but I thought of, I felt a sense of a shadow with Mick Jagger. There there was something there and I know that uh, there was a there was a, a a a group I believe called something like the process of church of final judgment and there was he got he was sort of interested in the dark side. So what was his place in this in this change, in in this movement into the Aquarian age?
1: Because I do think he has one, and I just don't understand quite what it would be. The the, the Stones were kind of the shadow side of the Beatles. And uh, my friend Gary Lockman uh, wrote a book called, I think, I don't know if the new title, it was was a new edition, uh, Turn Off Your Mind, The Dark Side of the 60s, something to that effect. Brilliant book. And on the one hand, you had... The Beatles representing that light, bright, joyful side. Uh, And then on the other side, you had the stones. And Mick Jagger has a very strong Pluto in his chart, by the way. He had a born with a Pluto sun, Jupiter, Mercury, uh, all tightly compacted in his horoscope. So he represented that kind of dark side. Uh, And... So yeah, it's it's at the same time, the same year in '69 that you had what was it, um, Woodstock? You had Altamont. You also had, uh, I think, uh, Charles Manson and the Manson murders. So it's there was whenever you have this eruption, I have an article about this in an earlier book. Um, but whenever you have this eruption of light in the culture, there tends to be also a corresponding. Like you can't create matter without creating antimatter. It's almost as though the darkness is there too. And it's, it's, the 60s is the perfect example of that. You had extraordinary things happen musically and spiritually in the 60s. You also had that darkness. You had the riots breaking out in cities across the U.S. You had violence. You had the assassinations. And you had you know, Mick Jagger talking about the devil and all this sort of thing. So there was an ecology happening then that brought in all those different elements. And Jagger was an element kind of the high priest of that dark side. And so was, you know, we've talked before about our mutual acquaintance, uh, Kenneth Anger. And uh, he also, and he had a connection to Jagger, as you know, and um, you know, it was all there. It was all there, both the light and the dark in the sixties.
0: Yeah. it, it it was all there and it it still is all there i, I want to ask you about all the gun gun stuff that's going on i mean you we not only do we have it in the united states like a like a spreading cancer uh but it's even happened in japan and in copenhagen of all places recently and what is going on and is there an astrological significance to it?
1: I can explain it in terms of what's happening in America. I don't have any simple explanations for why it's happening around the world, though it does seem the epicenter is America. And so it does, maybe it has to do with, you know, we're the leading edge of what's happening in the culture. So as America goes, so goes the rest of the world. I don't know why it's happening elsewhere. Um, I certainly believe in America it's because of this Pluto Bringing up this hidden violence, and there is violence in the United States horoscope—strong uh, Mars—and um, also there's also. I have a theory in my second book, Signs of the Times, about how the Aquarian Age is an air sign. It's it's a, air is very intellectual, very mental, but there's usually a shadow, a hidden darkness to air because it's it doesn't it's not comfortable dealing with emotions, and that can erupt up in the form of unresolved violence. So it may have to do with the ushering of the, in of the Aquarian Age. I, I don't have a simple answer for that.
0: Well, free dreamlanders, we have come to a sad place. It's the end of your participation in the show, and it's a particularly sad place because we're going to be talking with Ray about something you do not expect, and I'll tell you what it is. I'm not going to keep it a secret. It is the strange story of Erwin Fortman as it connects to the Roswell incident. You'll never have heard anything like this before. It is in many ways the most illuminating story about the high strangeness level of the whole close encounter phenomenon that I know. I've ever read. I was, it knocked my socks off. So we're going to be talking about that in just a minute. But before we go and leave you behind forever, free dreamlanders, I urge you to subscribe as always. And every week, actually lately, some of you have been doing that. And I've gotten some lovely emails saying, I'm sorry. I waited so long. This is so much fun. And it is fun. Uh, we just had Ann Tyler on, uh, on our, uh, chat we'll have other chats in the future and we have a weekly uh a a weekly chat room that i'm usually in and we have a lot of fun in the chat room uh there's wonderful social media on the site at at many different levels some of it free and some of it uh, uh for subscribers only it's just a lot of stuff and it's a lot of fun and it's about the future And Dreamland is a terrific podcast, frankly. Uh, I love doing it. I've been loving doing it for over 20 years. So stay with us. End of story. Ray's new book, When the Stars Align, and it is worth exploring the whole body of work of Ray Grasse. It is a tremendously wise and accomplished body of work of the utmost seriousness and and this is the great part, the utmost fun. He's fun to read, really fun to read. com. Go there, get up your courage, sign up for a reading, and you're probably going to be fairly amazed. Ray, it's great having you with us and subscribers. Let's go to the deserts of New Mexico right now. Okay, subscribers, let's get down to it. I just, when I opened this book, I was not expecting to read anything about the Roswell incident or UFOs or anything like that. You guys know already about my family association with it. I don't need to get into that again. Uh, but it meant a lot to me because I know for certain what what happened there from family members. Now, I had never heard of Erwin Fortman. Why don't you tell us a little bit about him? You can call him Tiny, uh because that and that's what he was called no. about no. your whole relationship with him and and I wondered if the meeting with him and, and how that all fell together was somehow in your stars.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It uh Uh, Uranus is the planet that tends to rule things like UFOs, the Aquarian Age, high technology, and that's quite prominent in my chart. So I've always been attracted to outliers, to weirdos to some extent, and people that are on the fringes. And so I won't go into the whole story of how I met him, other than to say uh, I heard about him through a mutual acquaintance that uh, this mutual acquaintance, it was a family, it was a relative of his that lived in California, Culver City, that he said had a connection to the Roswell incident. So I asked if I could get in touch with this man, and after several tries, because he was reluctant, this man, tiny as he turned out, that was his nickname. He didn't want to, to go public. He didn't want publicity. certainly didn't want money. He ran a, a hardware store in Culver City, California and um, to make a very long story short he uh, spoke uh, I managed to get him on the phone and talk to him and eventually he let me record him so I was able to transcribe it at first he didn't want it recorded and he had been stationed at Roswell in 1947 and he spoke about being sent out in the middle of the night to the desert uh, under a very hush hush type of Conditions and picking up body parts and putting them in body bags. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, but the thing that is so strange about the story of there's several strange things, but the the thing that struck me was he got to Roswell. He was stationed there after July, and as you know, July was when the main Roswell incident or incidents, take your pick, happened. And then he got there later and he said, this happened somewhere between Christmas and New Year's. He was Jewish. And as a result, he was one of the few people on base during the holidays because most of the Christian uh, soldiers were went off to celebrate Christmas and he was still there. And so he was one of the few guys that was sent out in the desert to pick up the body parts. And I recorded him talking about his experience and how shocked he was, because he never gave any thought about this. Though he had heard, when he got to the base, he heard talk about this earlier incident that had happened in July. But he paid it no attention at all, because that wasn't on his radar. He didn't care about that sort of thing until it happened to him. And it was, by the way, I did, you know, as I talk about in the book, his wife got in touch with me years later when she saw an article I I, uh, wrote about it on DailyGrail.com and told me, gave me his birthday, and I was able to look at his chart and see that it's very interesting that his chart did show this Uranus-Aquarius Uranus, uh, connection, so not surprisingly. But uh, he talked about the shock of looking down in the middle of the night. He said there were these floodlights on this spot, and there were these generals and military brass standing around, and he was told, you know, just do your job, pick up the body pieces. They had gloves on, perhaps for bacterial reasons, not because they didn't know if these things could be contagious in some sense. And it just turned his life around in terms of how he saw the world. And he was so, when he got back to the base, he was very good friends with Colonel Blanchard, who was a key figure in the Roswell story. And they were both large men, and so they would sometimes share each other's clothes or whatever, like they went out on a Friday. He was quite good friends with Blanchard. And um, when he got back to the base, Blanchard and the other high military brass said, you don't say a word of this to anyone or they're going to be picking up not only your body parts out of the desert, but your family members. So he did not talk about it. And he was close friends with Jim Lorenzen, who Jim and Carol Lorenzen, as you know, were you know, involved with APRO, APRO, the big UFO group back in the, I guess it was, 50s, 60s, you might know the date you meet. And he, despite in a traveling jazz band with uh, Jim for years, for several years, he never said a word to Jim. And I said, why? And he said, because he knew that Jim had that newsletter and he'd probably talk about it and it would get him into trouble because he was really scared by what they said to him, the military (coughs) brass, in terms of don't say a word of this to anyone. And, I, and years later, Stanton Friedman uh, got in touch with me, or I got in touch with him. I forget which direction that went. And he went out and interviewed a Tiny. Erwin Fort, Fortman was his full name, but his nickname was Tiny because he was so big. And I asked Stanton, you know, what what's your opinion of him? He says, well, he's he's clearly honest. He's, there's no line there, but I, he never... Published anything about the interviews, the interview he did with Tiny, because he wanted a secondary source before he went public with it. He said as convincing and compelling as Tiny was, he couldn't get another witness to to corroborate the December incident, which was a separate incident from the July one, and uh, and it was other things that brought in the. It was very cold at night. He said there was frost on the metal pieces on the ground. And so it was definitely not a July. I I also got in touch, or Anthony Bregaglia got in touch with me, uh, Tony got in touch with me me as well. He's another researcher. And he felt, oh, he's just confusing things, that that, uh, Tiny was just confused about the date. I don't buy that for a second. He was very clear to me that it was December and it was not the July date. And um, so there seems to be, you know, if, if we're taking Chinese words seriously, there was another incident that happened in '47 that involved bodies and uh, pieces of a spacecraft or whatever craft it was. And um, that's that's kind of the uh, Cliff Notes version of the story.
0: Yeah. Now, can you did he describe the body parts to you?
1: Yeah, he said that they were short. They they. You know, the interesting thing is I got in touch with him right around the time that that famous controversial uh, episode on Unsolved Mysteries came out in, I think it was, 89 or 90. And I said, what did you think? Because I had just started talking to Tiny. I said, you, you want to watch this because it's, it touches on the Roswell incident. And he was very disturbed, not only because of the fact that – uh the main reason was because the one on unsolved mysteries was July, but the other thing that concerned him was the fact that the bodies were a little bit different. Um, he said they did look uh, somewhat Oriental. They had big eyes, they um, you know slanted eyes, I guess he said. And in general, he said that at first he thought they might be Orientals, but then the more he looked at them, and he said they were. Different number of fingers. I can't remember if he said four or six, but there was one he more. He probably one. said six. Yeah, and uh, and he said, as he realized, he said, "There's no way these are human." I know that there are some researchers. I won't mention names, but there are some researchers that are convinced <clears throat> this was a military experiment, and that they were either, you know, human human bodies or short human bodies, whatever. It's it was obvious that from the way tiny was talking that these were not human and uh and there was one body that was intact he said it still had a helmet on the others were in pieces there were no living bodies that he saw and he said there were two or three of the medical trucks that went out and were doing these body parts and uh, he was said he was told by the uh, commanding officer do not touch anything except the bodies do your job put them in the bags and you know, get out of here and uh, so he said that I think they were like four and a half feet tall, each one. And um, I forget what he said about the color of the skin and the uh, the texture of the skin, but uh, he was adamant they were not human.
0: So he was – and then let me ask you this. Oh, excuse me, Ray. I'm just going to – Folks, I have, I have inefficient fingers. <laughs> I, I couldn't get my face back on the screen, but here we are again. Uh, now Uranus had just completed its first, its second full revolution yes. from where it was up upon discovery. Uh, when would the third revolution be completed?
1: Uh, the general ballpark would be. I would say from like twenty thirty up to twenty thirty two or twenty thirty three. So we're
0: closing in on that now. On yeah, uh, now also in nineteen forty seven, and we'll get back to tiny and the bodies in a minute. There was another extraordinary event, which was the discovery of the Nag Hammadi uh, trove of of uh, Christian esoterica in um in in Egypt. Uh, something that i have been studying for many many years with a group of friends because there is there are secrets in that that are deep and profound many of which ended up in my book jesus and new vision uh, now tell us about th- th- these two things are you know one of them is highly technological one of them is very ancient, but also in a way, it's about lost technology, because you can find in the Nagamati material, if you know what you're looking for, a lost science of the soul. That's very interesting. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm just thinking about what may happen in 2030. What may be f- What may be on the cards there? And I, I think about the 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 planet X and the possibility that it may involve uh, the visitors in, in some way, that, that maybe we will discover, find that planet in 2030, 2032, as Uranus comes back around and the visitors emerge. So I, I think it's a possibility, and I'm just sort of throwing it out as is that am i making a, a, a reasonable prediction or not it's no. not a prediction it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a speculation
1: you know the first uranus return in the 1860s was accompanied by in the popular imagination this this burst of enthusiasm for the works of Jules Verne for example and and uh, space travel and uh, aviation was beginning, in a sense, with hot air balloons. Like you know, in the Civil War, they were using balloons, you know, for surveillance and all this. And so, you every time Uranus comes around, you have this advance in aviation technology, as well as of thought, thinking about uh, life on other planets. And then in '47, the same month is, as the Uranus return, the second Uranus return, you had Roswell, as well as. There are many things that happened. You had the birth of the CIA. You had the birth of the uh, U.S. Air Force. You had the birth of the largest democracy in the world in India, for example. These are all Iranian. And so this coming time, and it's not all good. It's not all bad. You look at the breakup of India with Pakistan and all that. It was very violent. Uh, And the CIA is, you know, is that a good or a bad thing? Well, you know, take your pick. Uh, And so the the coming Uranus return, I think, is going to be an extraordinary time. I think it's going to be a huge tectonic shift in terms of both space travel as well as awareness of other intelligences, whether they be in outer space or other dimensions or whatever. But I think there's there's always going to be a dark side. Anytime you have this major thrust and a major advance, it's not going to be all good or bad. You know, the 60s, like I said, it gave us the Beatles. It gave us Charles Manson. Um I think that the downside could really have to do with automation and, and <laughs> the rise of the robots, perhaps to some extent. and uh, but I, I think it's we're in an exceptionally exciting time in terms of space exploration. Uh, the, the web telescope, uh, contact, uh, it might just start with awareness signals from you know a distant point in space, and it may, from there evolve into contact. Now, as you and I both believe, contact has long since been made. We're talking about conscious uh, public contact, which is a whole different ballgame. And I think, I I personally think 2030 to 32 is when that could really explode out in a, in a major sort of way. But you were, you're talking about the Nag Hammadi. That's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought of it as ancient technology, but I think you're right. There's, it's, uh, it's kind of a spiritual technology, and um, so, yeah, I need to think about that some more.
0: Well, there was once a science of the soul, and by a science, I mean something where when you complete certain operations, uh, predictable effects result. And we lost track of the soul slowly, uh, beginning with the Romans and then accelerating very dramatically oddly enough with the rise of the industrial age that started also in the 1780s the 1760s to 80s and now the world is so filled with material objects we are completely drawn out into it by our lives and we're soul blind we're completely soul blind you have to work very hard to be able to sense your second body. But I mean, people don't realize that they think, well, what I can sense is my first body, but I've been doing a sensing exercise for 60, nearly 60 years. And believe me, you can sense your subtle body. You can sense it just like you can sense your physical body, but we don't know that. Um, Okay. Now let's go, let's go back to tiny. Um, If there was a second crash did he say that the bodies you mentioned body parts were they any of
1: them intact did he say that one he said one had a helmet on and that was intact the other ones were in pieces and i don't know if he said how many other bodies there were at least two other i don't remember if he specified because they were just body parts they had been ripped apart by the crash presumably and uh, but he said there was one body that still had a helmet on and he said they were quite light. You know, he said that it was easy to pick up. Of course, he was a big guy. And um, and he, and I asked him, did you ever hear anything more about it? He says, no, it would just clamp down. And he said there wasn't even any talk about the first Roswell incident. He said in the months that he had been there, I think he, he must have gone to the base like in August or September. And he said he would hear people sitting around uh, – other guys talking about the July incident, which he could hear in the background. And then he said after the December incident, he says there was no talk about any of this. He said that they really buckled down and told everybody to shut up.
0: Because I've heard rumors, I've never followed them up because I didn't know how, but now I'm wondering if some of the experts on Roswell shouldn't follow these rumors up. That one, that there was a a, a UFO shot down. Or brought down by a some kind of a radar? I, could this be that incident? And if that had happened, if it had been accidentally brought down by a radar uh, from White Sands, maybe they would be particularly eager to cover it up at all costs, because you know you don't want to. If there's an if 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 you've got a lion in your living room. You really don't want that lion to wake up. And if they had accidentally or intentionally even shot something down like that, they would be scared. Uh,
1: go ahead. That's very interesting. Well, one other detail that I thought was interesting was—I um, just lost my train of thought there. Let's see.
0: One of the details. Well, about the probably it was about going to be about the ship.
1: Oh no, I remember this. He said that the, intriguingly, when he was woke up in the middle of the night along with the other soldiers that were the paramedic uh, from the uh, base, he had been trained in, as a paramedic. And they were woken up, and he said they were kind of debriefed before they went out saying, uh, you're, We're going to go out there, you just do your job. They, they weren't given any clues as to what happened. But and then when they got back to the bases when they really laid down the law and they said not to do talk about this, what he thought was very interesting was it was clear from the way they were talking about it, it was almost as though they had a memorized script. He he had the impression that this was not the first time this had happened. That this was something that was almost you know routine. The fact that when they debriefed it was it was Almost something they were familiar with. It wasn't like they were shocked. The higher ups were shocked, or that they were startled by this thing. It was very matter of fact the way that they debriefed him before and after. So I thought that was kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, because something was going on there. That because in that whole area, because there were there were obviously even if this one. We don't know much about this one. There are other crashes there. Jacques Vallee and Paola Harris have pretty much shown that there was one in um, at at the Trinity site in New Mexico, not too far from Roswell, uh, in nineteen forty-five. And so I have to think that there was something very unusual going on out there, because these things don't crash, you know. When Anne read about all of these crashes. And I think she was talking, we we had Stanton Friedman, uh, to the house at, at the cab. I, I think it was Stanton or maybe it was, uh, anyway, to the cabin. She said to me "Whitley, you know, is it dangerous to go up in these things? Cause I think I don't want you to be in a UFO crash. <laughs> I said, I don't know. I can't do anything about being up in them. I'm just, when I, it's only happened to me once or twice, as far as I know. But, um, now I want to move on though because talking about this is fascinating and I think we're looking at something that, that that was should never have happened but that kept happening and that scared the hell out of the air force because again I think that they thought that somebody was going to get very angry at them if this if, if this didn't stop. Um now you talk about, and let's go back to astrology and to the, um, the, uh, uh, the idea of a holistic, a more whole vision of it, which I think is a very important part of your own thinking, if I'm not correct. Can you tell us what you mean when you say that astrology should be more holistic?
1: Uh, I can take that on a few different levels, but mainly what I meant was that, um, well, first of all, the, the, the worldview that underlies astrology is holistic in the sense of it doesn't see us as separate from the cosmos. And that, you know, how is it that Mars and Venus and Jupiter and Neptune influence us, when in fact I don't think it's a question of influencing us, it's a synchronistic relationship the jupiter is not outside of me in a sense i extend all the way into space who i really am this body is just you know the tip of the iceberg and so when jupiter is moving around and forming an aspect of venus for example it's not sending down invisible rays to me it's because i'm connected to everything that's going on there's an interconnectedness it's a web of interconnectedness that's one level of it but also in terms of when you look at a horoscope it's um, you have to, I think, see all these different levels. It's there's a level at which astrology is purely practical. You know, you saw some of that in terms of when it's better to do things, when it's better not to do things, and that's putting it a little simplistically because so-called negative energies might actually be good for certain things. So I want to be careful how I say that. But um, I, I think a really good astrologer is someone that incorporates. Holistically, these different levels and compartments. So, for instance, they might look at the physical, they might look at the spiritual, they might look at the the emotional and the psychological. Um, And the other thing, you look at a, a given horoscope and you can't see anything in isolation. You can't look at just a person might have, you know, Saturn doing something in one part of the chart. How that is going to manifest and play out in the person's life will depend on how it interacts. There's an ecology there. How it interacts with the entire horoscope. You know, it's it's the, the the psyche is holistic. It's not. You know, you have these different archetypal principles, these energies in your chart, and they interact. It's a family, and there's family relations you might say in the psyche. So those are some of the things I meant by that. I I, there may be others that I'm forgetting, and if, if I'm not hitting on what you're talking about, please feel free to press me.
0: Oh, oh no, I think that's that's exactly right. And um, it gets me to uh, the question of what we are. And I think of us as, I think of the our relationship to the stars and the planets as a reflection of the of the lives that are etched on a soul in other words i don't think we come in here randomly i think we come in here to live a certain life not not moment to moment but a, a general pattern and if you look at your stars correctly you will find out what your pattern is And why you're here, and you may begin to get get deep insights into your soul's own reason for coming into this life. So how do you respond to that as a possibility?
1: Uh, I I agree with that. And I think that um, understanding that pattern, I mean, I think every chart has a certain purpose. There's this uh, idea of the acorn theory. James Hillman made it more popular but this notion, the Greeks had this this word telios, telos, which is you can't understand an acorn by dissecting it and looking at it under a microscope. The only way you can fully understand an acorn is by understanding by also understanding its potential as an oak tree. And by the same token, you can't really understand a horoscope by dissecting the individual elements. What is the oak tree of a horoscope what is the purpose what is the ultimate potential of a horoscope of a given life you know everybody everybody's an acorn so to speak what's your full potential as as a as a, as an oak tree a spiritual oak tree and there's a story I relate in the book about uh the time that I was um I was 19 and I went to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam uh, in it, I think it was Amsterdam and I was standing in front of the Rembrandt painting, this large painting called Night Watch. And I was looking up close, back in those days, you could get right up to the painting. I was looking at the dabs of black and brown and gray and all these different colors. And up close, it was nothing impressive really because like you'd look at a dab of brown paint or gray paint and it looks kind of blah by itself. You stand back and you see how that individual dab of paint fits into the whole picture. And I had this real sense, as I thought back about that years later, that each lifetime, in a sense, is like a dab of paint on a gigantic canvas. And that over the course of thousands, if not millions of lifetimes, it's quite possible we've had, you know, I think we're eternal, so I think it's possible we've had infinite number of lifetimes. That each individual lifetime might, you know, play a role in that larger canvas in the same way that that individual dab of paint does within, you know, the Rembrandt's canvas. So, you know, the, the, your, your question raises a lot of interesting possibilities for me in terms of the holism and in terms of purpose and the life's destiny and all this sort of thing.
0: Ray Grasse. I think that we have come to the end of our time together on dreamland. It seems like a very, very short interview. I must say, I can hardly believe that we've been talking together for an hour and a half, but we have, um, what's next in your journey of life? Uh, you must be, are you working on anything else uh, at this time? I'm
1: taking a break from the writing somewhat. Um, I'm pacing myself with the chart readings. I'm actually booked up into uh, spring of next year because I'm trying to get back more into the creative work. So I'm working on some photography books. And uh, I I tinker with music on the side. And so I'm trying, as you know, working on the book, it puts you into one side of the brain sometimes a bit too much.
0: Yeah, Um, I'm, I'm in that state now. I'm working on a book.
1: Yeah, and it's it's a difficult space to be in, and when you're done with it, you have to decompress, and I think shift over, or else it's it becomes imbalanced. So I'm trying to. It was a real labor of love, but it was a labor of finishing this last book. So I'm taking a little time off. It's it may be a while before I do another textbook, but for right now, it's photography and music, just to kind of exercise the other side of my brain, the other side of my soul. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a big, complicated, wonderful soul, Ray. I'm always such a, it's such a joy to have you on the show. Um, Ray Grasset, When the Stars Align, and his website, com. You can sign up for a reading there. And I would suggest if you're going to think about doing it, do it. Because uh, he he is got, he's got, he's a busy boy. He's really got a lot of readings to do and um ray grasse photography if you want to see the work of a of a photographer who is really very conscious of his art in the best possible way go to ray grasse photography and just enjoy ray thank you so much thank you you've been listening to dreamland be sure to tune in again next week Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown
1: Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.